0: I holler pretty good. <laughs> Alright, so let's take a look. Revelation chapter 7, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, And after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up this section of scripture to you tonight, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, the heart of our understanding, God, that we would allow your word to guide us, lead us, direct us, and Father, that we would uh, uh, just um, allow, God, your spirit to move in this place. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as we open your word, and pray that, uh, Lord, you would... uh, Use the seed of your word to bring forth fruit in our life, God, and we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first, there's two parts in chapter 7 that we're going to take a look at. The first one is the sealed servants of God. And then the second one that we're going to look at tonight are the saved saints that come out or that uh, come forward as a result of The sealed servant. So we'll take a look in the beginning. There's a lot of uh, confusion as we look at the 144,000, which I always find somewhat astounding. Um, Even as I research it more and understand more about where the other views come from, I still struggle with uh, getting a grip on how they get so confused. But hopefully, I won't confuse you (coughs) as we take a look. First thing we want to see, there's instruction given to four angels. Look at it. It says in, in 7 verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. So what are the four corners of the earth? North, south, east, west. Not hard to understand, right? A lot of times people would, uh, would get all wrapped up in a bunch and say, you know, there's not four corners in a sphere. But we all use that phrase still today, don't we? Yeah, sure we do. And we use those four directions. You know, So the idea is, if you, you held up the sphere of the earth, north, south, east, west, four angels around, and the point of what those four angels is what? Let's take a look. Holding back the four winds of the earth, and no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Now when we look at this, this is one of those occasions where I don't think we want to be uh, super literal, and I'll... And I'll Explain that in a minute because I think God explains what those four angels are doing by holding back the wind. What, they're, what he's talking about with the wind is not the wind that blows on the earth day in and day out. What he's talking about are the judgments in the seven trumpets that are about to sound. So we're heading into <coughs> the second uh, sphere of judgments in seven trumpets that are about to sound as soon as the seventh seal is open. We'll see that in chapter 8, verse 1. But before that sounds, before that goes off, before those angels begin, God tells, I believe, the first four angels, Hold up. Wait. I'm going to seal 144,000. I have a special purpose, a a special plan. We, We see similar things to this in the New Testament. In fact, when we look, if you just think of your history, There was the church, and there was a lot of persecution going on in the early days of the church. Um, You know, most of that persecution was founded between or in the relationship between Jews and, and Christians. And one of the forefront guys that was a part of persecuting the church, the name was Saul, right? Saul's persecuting the church. So what happens? Saul meets God. Did you share God with him? No. Did I? No. Who did? God did. God said, "Man, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk to Paul. In fact, he's going to change his name. Saul, exalted one, to Paul, small one." Once upon a time, he thought he was a pretty had a pretty big set of breeches. Now, not so much. Post meeting the Lord, post seeing the Lord. So, so God reaches him. God has a plan and a purpose. For Paul, he's going to use Paul. Paul's going to write 13 of the New Testament epistles. And he's going to be uh, one of the apostles sent forth to really help people understand the structure and the, the growth of the church. How that was all going to fit together. That was God's purpose. God specifically went and got Paul for that purpose. In fact, he told Paul in Acts chapter 9. You can read about it. He said, Paul, I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. I got a special job for you. Not going to be a lot of fun, but it's yours. And so we see this now here in Revelation. You see a similar thing happening. The judgments of God have begun. Right? You got the four horsemen of the apocalypse getting ready to 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 go out. And as that judgment begins, there's a moment where God says, "Stop! I've got 144,000 special servants I've called that that I'm going to seal." And in my opinion, they're just like what God did with Paul. Only there was how many of him? One. So what's God going to be able to do with 144,000 of them? I think there's an important concept for us to understand when we look at this. Because I think God's plan and purpose for this 70th week of Daniel. And we'll see it over and over again as we look through the book of Revelation. Is that the gospel will go everywhere. Currently today, if you were to count up all the missionaries, you're somewhere in the 50,000 range. So 144,000 is three times what you have now as missionaries. That's a lot of missionaries. Specifically called an anointed of God to go do or fulfill a purpose for him. And we'll see that as we go on. But let's look at it. (laughs) It says in verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, "Do not harm the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads." So you remember, I told you there's a reason why I think we shouldn't be too literal with the word wind, because he uses the same three terms, saying, "Don't harm." What he say? "Don't harm the the trees. Don't harm the." The sea, don't harm the earth. The same three things he said, don't let the wind blow on the earth, on the sea, or on the trees. And then two verses later, he says, don't harm them. So I, I think pretty clearly what God's laying out is, the judgment is coming, and it's pictured like the wind. Here it comes. But he says, hold off, hold off until I have sealed these 144,000. Now we see, Let's look at it. we got this idea. Here's the instruction. Angels, hold off a minute. Then we see the identity of the sealed ones. Who does he seal? Now, I don't know how we get this so confused, but we still get it confused, and and there doesn't appear to be any uh, uh, sense coming anytime soon. The identity of the sealed ones. first thing that we get from this section of Scripture, they are servants of God. First thing he says, until we have sealed what? The servants of God. So these are servants God has specifically called uh, for a a purpose for Him. They come from all the tribes of the children of Israel. Right? How many tribes are there? Twelve? We'll argue about that in a minute. And how many are are listed here? Twelve? So we got twelve tribes, right? So we we see them coming from all the tribes of Israel. What else? (laughs) We see that they are sealed on their foreheads. So the seal... Speaks of three three things. A seal, you, you would seal something for three reasons. One, to show ownership. That's mine. Got my stamp on it. Uh, the other is to set aside for judgment or protection. You remember when Jesus died, he goes into the tomb. They put a stone over the tomb. And what did they do to it? They sealed it. Right? Don't open this. Under, under penalty of death. Leave this... Leave this uh, closed. So we see the similar thing, only now we're talking about a sealing on people. Now the Word of God tells us that everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is sealed. How is He sealed? Everyone is sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal, proof of ownership that you belong to God. God has His stamp on you. Now we hear more about this 144,000... Seven chapters from now, when we come toward the end of their ministry. But it says in Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000, listen to what it says, who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. So it's uh, obviously in contrast to the mark of the beast, right? The mark of the beast being... Some type of a mark that shows ownership to the beast. Uh, this one is a mark that shows ownership to the Lamb and to the Father, to the Father and the Son. So when you have, it has both their names. You Literally, guys, you can have Yeshua. If Yeshua was written on someone's name or on someone's forehead, you'd have both names. You get that? Because the name of the Father is in the name of the Son. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is ultimately the name of the Father. Yeshua, the name of the Son. Both names are joined together just in that simple term. Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus, Yahweh saves. So, they're going to have this on their forehead. Now, let's look at the at the next part of chapter 7, verse 4, and see... What else we learned about this number? It says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. <coughs> that seems kind of specific to me. Right? Does that seem specific to you? That seems specific to me. Let me tell you, when we, when we go through Scripture and we say, this number is a general number or a general term, or speaking of something different, it's not got this much... Um, information around it a hundred and forty four thousand twelve thousand from each of the twelve tribes each of the twelve tribes are mentioned let me tell you another thing that people get confused about the days of creation and the evening and the morning were the first day now the word day yom can mean an indeterminate period of time unless it's used in a series with numbers or with evening and morning because once I say evening and morning what what did we just occur, what just occurred? A normal day, right? But we still argue over whether this is a normal day or not. There's no argument. The Bible says a normal day. Like it or lump it, throw it out, say it's stupid, whatever you want to do. But you can't. What you can't say is that's not what it says. If I told you today the morning and the evening was the first day, would you think I was talking about a thousand years? You're gonna think I'm talking about just a normal day, right? If I said to you, I chose 144,000, 12,000 from each of these families in Buell, you think I'm talking about some random group of other people? I just don't understand where you get the idea that this is 144,000 means the totality of the church. What a strange way to describe the church as 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. What a really good way to describe the 12 tribes of Israel, however... <clears throat> but, but to say it speaks of the church or, or to say that it speaks of a, a certain number of the Jehovah Witnesses or to say that it speaks of anything else. What does it say? 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Why do I want to make that something different? I, I spent probably two hours a day reading probably four different commentaries trying to explain to me why that should be seen as the church or some other group. And I could not understand them at all. I, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. What makes sense to me when, it, when, when the literal reading is easy. I kind of like the literal reading, right? 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes. 144,000. Here's the problem when we start talking about the 12 tribes. How many tribes are there really? 13 tribes. Now, every time the tribes are mentioned, right, there's 12 mentioned. You know how many times the tribes are mentioned in the Bible? Just in case you end up in a Bible trivia game. 29 times the lists are given. You know how many times they're different? 18 out of 29. 18 times out of 29, there's, there's a change. Remember, there's 13 of them. And for one reason or another, one of the tribes is missing. It's out. And sometimes there's some information that we can glean if we want to try to understand why they're not there. Now it's interesting because here in Revelation, there's two tribes that aren't mentioned. Well, that's weird. I thought you said there were 13. Well, there are. But there's a problem. In the 13, why are there thirteen? There are 13 because remember when, when um, Jacob found his son Joseph. Remember he thought he was dead. He was living in Egypt. You guys all with me? And Joseph had how many sons? Two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Jacob adopted them. So Joseph was divided. The tribe of Joseph kind of moves out of the way. And Ephraim and Manasseh become 12 and 13. You guys understand what I'm talking about? But you should have noticed something in this reading in Revelation chapter 7. You should have noticed the tribe of Joseph's there. And the tribe of Manasseh's there. So really there's two tribes missing. Dan and Ephraim. And there's a reason why those two tribes are missing. Remember when we come to this period of time that we're reading about. We're studying the 70th week of Daniel. Daniel. We're studying God's final judgment. We're taking a look at God's restoration of the nation of Israel, which includes God judging the nation of Israel, God judging a Christ-rejecting world, a a series of judgments that we are going to read all the way through from 6 to 19. And the purpose you're going to see as we work our way through is to bring men to repentance, to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, but men in their pride and stubbornness don't do it. But it doesn't mean if you did, you wouldn't be saved, right? The Bible is very clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what's the next phrase? Shall be saved. You can call on Him. Okay, so you have that purpose and the purpose of bringing forth the remnant, the believing part of Israel. Because Paul would write in, in Romans chapter 11 all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel. All the true, all the real. All believing Israel, we're going to see in this 70th week of Daniel. So, here's a couple of things I want to go over as we look at the 12 tribes and why they're listed this way. In the Bible, the first time they're listed, the 12 tribes laid out for us, Genesis 35, verses 22 to 26, they're listed a certain way. And the last time, chronologically, in a period of time, the last time they're mentioned is Ezekiel 48, 30-34. And both of those are the same. One speaking of the beginning. Ezekiel 48, talking about the end. The first one talking about the beginning. Ezekiel 48 is looking at a heavenly temple. And he mentions the 12 tribes. Just like the same 12 tribes we had in the beginning. What does that tell us? It tells us that the 12 tribes who start are still going to be the 12 tribes who end. Okay? They're still going to be there. But there's two tribes specifically that God's going to judge. There's two tribes specifically that that there was something special about those two tribes that set them apart. Let's take a look at it. The first listing, Genesis 35. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So the sons of Jacob were twelve. Here they are. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. First listing. Ezekiel 48, looking at a future temple and Jesus the Messiah reigning over the people as king. It says, these shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure. Three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi. The gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. On the east, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, gate of Benjamin, the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure. Three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits. Three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, the gate of Naphtali. So the two tribes we have missing, Dan and Ephraim. Dan and Ephraim mark the northernmost and the southernmost tip of the nation of Israel. You remember when Israel divided into two countries? You have Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam wanted to add more taxes. The people split. Ten tribes went north. Two tribes stayed south. The ten tribes that went north, the top tribe in that land was Dan. The bottom tribe in that land was Ephraim. Ephraim and Dan marking the borders of it. But that's not really, I think, the point that God's making in setting these two apart. Look what it says in Judges 18. In Judges 18, verse 30, it says, And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the Lamb. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. That's a long time. So what is, what is that marking in Judges? The first tribe to go into idolatry, into worshiping other gods, is the tribe Dan. Dan's the first one who goes into idolatry. And so he's marked for a special judgment. First Kings chapter 12, verse 28. says, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people... You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. This Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. So the king, uh, he divides the nation. He doesn't want people from the north to go to the south to worship. So to stop them from going south to worship, he puts idols or idolatry in two specific tribes. Want to guess which two? In the north, they put the golden calf in Dan. And in the south, they put the golden calf in Ephraim. Those two tribes become a center of false worship in the rebellious ten tribes of Israel that were... In rebellion against God. In Hosea four seventeen, it says Ephraim is joined to idols, so leave him alone. In Deuteronomy twenty-eight, verse fifty-eight, it says this If you are not careful to do all the words of this law which are written in your book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and on your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, sickness grievous and lasting. He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness, also every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. In the beginning, when God called them all, He said, look, if if you guys don't follow me, There's going to be a time of great affliction that's going to come upon you. There's going to be a time of great judgment that's going to come upon you because of those choices that you made. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, it says this, Beware lest there be any among you, a man or a woman or clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of other nations. Beware lest there be... Among you, a root bearing poisonous or bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from among the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. So part of the call that God gave to the twelve tribes was, if you walk in idolatry, you're going to suffer judgment, affliction, the things, the curses that were written in this book. When we come to the 70th week of Daniel, what is that? It's a time of affliction, of judgment, of the pouring out of the wrath of God. On a Christ-rejecting world. So I think that Ephraim and Dan are not listed there because they're going to go through that time. We, we, when we read about these 144,000, what we're going to read about them is they're sealed, they're protected. At the beginning of the tribulation, how many are there? 144,000. Chapter 14, when we come to the end of the tribulation, how many are there? 144,000. They lose one? Not one. Why? Because they're sealed, they're protected. But two tribes aren't protected. Dan and Ephraim. They don't have any representatives from those two tribes. They are going to go through all of those judgments. Because they were those who not only fall, fell into idolatry, but taught others to do the same. So part of God's judgment. But remember, when we look at Ezekiel 48, does God wipe them out? No, because in Ezekiel 48, when we see... The heavenly reign, the reign of Jesus Christ as king on on earth. What do we see in the new temple? We still have three gates named after the tribes. And Dan and Ephraim are both there. So God doesn't abolish the whole tribe, but He will bring His judgment against them. Now we want to understand a little bit more about the 144,000. We're going to look ahead. We're going to look ahead to Revelation 14 because it gives us a little more information so we'll just look at the first five verses of Revelation 14, if you want to look there. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000, who had, the, had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They are singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now I want you to see the 144,000 is a group distinct from the angels. Distinct from the elders, which is representative of the church. Distinct from the living creatures. This is another group. It's another group of people. This is Israel redeemed from among the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. There's not a lot of other ways to read that. So when we look at the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes, they're all virgins. And the, the, the noun used to describe them as virgins is masculine. So the inference is these are all men who are not married. Whose sole purpose, uh, designed by God, is to go out as God's missionary to a Christ rejecting world to bring the gospel. 12,000, each of the 12 tribes, virgin men, not married. That seems to be the clear reading of, of what chapter 14 is laying out for us. It is these that have not defiled themselves with women, they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as a first fruits. Now what does that mean? As a first fruits means God, just like Paul, is like a firstfruit. God went out and got Paul, but what came as a result of Paul? Was Paul the last fruit that came? No, you got churches springing up everywhere, right? Every, every person who's a part of the church today owes some debt to the Apostle Paul, who really kick-starts a lot of it with, uh, with the other apostles as well. So we, we owe a debt to them. They're the first fruits. The 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 apostles. The the apostles and the apostle Paul. Interesting when we talk about the twelve apostles, how many are there really? Thirteen if you include Paul, right? Is that that's not interesting? Twelve tribes, thirteen if you include Ephraim and Manasseh and take Joseph out. I, Side note, but the idea is when we look at patterns in the Bible, they are consistent. I like consistency. So we look at it, we see, look, the first fruits, 144,000 are the first fruits. Who's going to come from them? Well, the Bible tells in chapter 7, a multitude you can't even number are going to get saved as a result of the witness of the 144,000. Everybody tracking? Hopefully. There are first fruits in their mouth, no lie was found. For they are blameless. So what do we learn from Revelation 14? They're redeemed out of the earth. So they're here. They're not sent from heaven. They're here. They are virgins, literally single men with no encumbrances, not, not uh, married. There is a possible, uh, some people take it as a, as a metaphor. The concept of being a virgin is a metaphor that they're not immoral. Uh, that just seems forced on the, on the context, but. If that's, your, if that's your gig, I'll let you have it. <clears throat> the third thing we learned, there are fruits to God and to the Lamb. They're the first group saved out of the tribulation. The first one saved, 144,000 specifically sealed by God, I believe chosen by God, just as Paul was chosen by God, for the purpose to reach a lost world under judgment. So God doesn't just want to wipe everybody out. He's, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance, to return. So let's look. Who are these saved saints? What's after the first fruits? Who is it that comes next? Let's take a look. It's in 7, <clears throat> Revelation 7. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Look at the people being described. After this, after the sealing of the 144,000, I looked, <clears throat> and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The first fruits are the 144,000. This unnumbered multitude are all the people who get saved as a result. That's how many people get saved during the 70th week of Daniel while God is judging the nation of Israel, judging a Christ-rejecting world, because the offer still stands. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, only 144,000 are sealed. Only 144,000 are protected. Only the 144,000 start in the beginning and make it to the end. The other guys may be saved and, and die in some of the judgments, in the fire, in the in the poison water, in the sickness, in the... And the 200 million man demonic army that, we, that we'll see in a, in a few weeks. All of that may still take their lives. But the 144,000 that God is using to minister to the world, God's going to sustain them. Everybody with me? Let's take a look. It says, <clears throat> they are removed from all nations, kindred, people, and tongues. So they come from everywhere, right? Nobody's cut out. Is anybody cut out today? The salvation, the salvation limited, it can't save everyone. So it can save all kinds of people, right? Whosoever will call. We also see that they are all resurrected. What's the sign that they're all resurrected? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Anytime we see individuals in a vision standing before the throne and the Lamb, it's speaking of the resurrection. The Bible says there's two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked. That, that means that these guys are a part of the resurrection of the righteous. They're raised to be with God. Just the same way we are. Different group. The elders of the church. 144,000 <coughs> and the unnamed <coughs> saved people as a result are tribulation saints. They're both saved. They're both in heaven. They're just not the same. One's the church. One's tribulation saints. Before the church, God dealt with What nation? Israel, right? So, what do we call the people who are saved from Israel? Old Testament saints. So, you have Old Testament saints. Are they the church? No, John the Baptist, who was the last prophet, said, I'm just uh, someone invited to the marriage. Well, what marriage is he talking about? The marriage between Christ and the church. So, the Old Testament saints are, are part of the attendance at the wedding, they're not the bride. But they're still saved, still going to the same place. You guys tracking with me? You have Old Testament saints, the church, tribulation saints, all saved the same way through the blood of the Lamb, through Jesus Christ, all called at different times in history, (coughs) all called in slightly different ways. They each have a beginning and an end. Beginning and the end of the old, beginning and the end of the church, beginning and the end of the tribulation saints. God reaching out in all times. So these guys are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We also see that they're redeemed. How do we know they're redeemed? What are they wearing? White robes, right? What do white robes speak of? The righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? They're clothed in His righteousness just like we are, just like Old Testament saints are. You only get saved one way, through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it, the only way in. Old Testament saints looked forward to it. The church looks back to it. Tribulation saints look both ways back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, forward to the second coming, seven years away. Right? Seven years away from His return. So, we see that they're clothed in white robes, they're redeemed. We also see they're rejoicing. What are they holding in their hands? Palm branches. What did they hold in their hands when Jesus came marching into Jerusalem? Palm branches, right? We call it Palm Sunday as a result. What were they doing? They were rejoicing in the King. Blessed is the name of He who comes uh, in, in, the, in the name of David. Blessed is He. They're saying, Messiah's here, Messiah's here. Waving palm branches. You see the same thing with these guys. They're rejoicing. And they also respond with praise to God. What do they say to God? Cry out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're giving Praise and glory to God. So we see this is the group. These are the saved saints coming out of the tribulation. This is a description of the people. (laughs) Now, what happens to the people who are in heaven already? We're seeing the the bringing home, if you will, of the tribulation saints like a parenthetical chapter. Chapter 7 gives us a little glimpse of all those who are going to be saved through the tribulation. And they're all together in heaven with the church with the Old Testament saints, and there's this praise that bursts forth. What's it look like? Look at verse 11. All the angels who were standing around the throne, and around the elders, elders and angels are distinct, and the four living creatures, another distinct group, fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. Over and over again we see the same thing. Angels on their face, the church on her face, the tribulation saints will be on their face, the Old Testament saints will be on their face, Because whenever we're before the throne of God, that's what we do. We bow down and worship. Shaka. We all bow down. We all lay down on our face and we give worship to Him. And what are the words that they say? Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Is there anything God hasn't supplied us with that we need? No, He's given it all. He's given us Jesus Christ. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? This is what the word declares. If you got Jesus, you got everything God has to give. There ain't nothing else. You got everything you need. All wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So they give worship to the king, to God. Then in verse 13, we see an issue with uh, who these people are. Look what happens. And one of the elders addressed me and said... Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Now remember when we talk about one of the elders, we're talking about the church. The church, 24 elders are the church laid out in heaven. They've been in heaven since chapter 4, chapter 4 and 5. The church is in heaven, the tribulation saints coming afterwards. The elder looks over at John says, who are these guys? And John says, I don't know, surely you know, right? Well, I don't know, I hope you know, because if you don't know, I'm not going to find out so what is it the elder says to him the elder says these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation Not so hard to understand is it these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white how in the blood of the lamb how did you make yourself white washed your robes in the blood of the lamb it's the blood of jesus christ that purges us all it's the blood of jesus christ that saves all right even in the old testament sure because every Old Testament believer participated in something. What was it? Sacrifice. What did that sacrifice look for? One day there will be a sacrifice that never has to be repeated. One day there will be a lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so by faith they trusted God and participated in that. And that was their faith looking forward to a deliverance that would come in Jesus Christ. So how did they wash their robes? The same way. They believed one day my Redeemer Will come. He will stand on this earth. I will see him with my eyes. And not another. Me. And so. They're saved. How? By faith. How are you saved? By faith. How are they saved? By faith. It's all the same. It's all the same. Different times. Different levels of revelation from God. But in the end. It's all the same salvation that we see. Coming down. Now a lot of times. I don't have time tonight to get too deep into it, but a lot of times people say, well, the tribulation is a period of second chances. I don't believe in second chances. I'll tell you why. If you got time, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And when you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's going to say that all the people who heard the gospel, this is a Jackie paraphrase, stay with me, All the people who heard the gospel and had not a love for the truth, they didn't believe it, they're all going to believe the lie. If they didn't love the truth, they're all going to believe the lie. But God still is going to send three times the missionaries around the world because there will still be people who didn't hear. Are you with me? And they're going to hear. But if they don't... If you have heard the gospel today and you have not made a decision for Christ and you say, after the rapture I believe, you won't. Because the Bible says if you don't have a love for the truth, you will believe the lie. Period. So there ain't no I hope they get it right next time. There is just the, the hope of deception at that point. That's why the Bible implores us that now is the day of salvation. Today is the day we're supposed to share the gospel with whomever we can so that they have opportunity, right, to have a love for the truth. But if they reject the truth, there is only a fearful expectation of coming judgment. (coughs) For the scripture declares it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Especially after you have trampled through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, I don't think we're looking at a second chance, but I think we are looking at still an innumerable amount of people who get saved as a result of the witness of the 144,000. You with me? So, um, nonetheless, we come to verse 15. The promises of God to this multitude. What has God promise them? Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. So, what is it the tribulation saints are going to do in heaven? They're going to serve God in his temple day and night. What is it the church is going to do? The church is the bride of Christ. The Bible says wherever he is, we're going to be. For how long? Forever. About the Old Testament saints, what are they going to do? Scripture says the Old Testament saints are going to be ruled ruled and reigned. God's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. So all we're all dealing with the same place but slightly different roles slightly different positions i'm not saying one's better than the other i don't i wouldn't know i can only deal with the time i'm born in i don't get to go back and be in egypt or or go through the exodus i just got what i got and i have an opportunity to believe to hold fast to what god has provided for us and to experience the promises that god has but the promises for these guys Look what it says. They'll serve him day and night in the temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Why do you think he says that? I just want you to hold on to the concept. We're talking about tribulation saints. What do we know that the Bible says they won't be able to do under the Antichrist? They won't be able to buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast. If they take the mark of the beast, they're lost. That's it. That's, a, that's, a, that's picking a side. There's no, I accidentally took the market of beast. It was the dumbest part of them books. Did you guys read them books? I read them all, and I got to that part, and I was like, You've got to be kidding. Me. There's no such thing as accidentally taking the market of beast. The Bible's pretty clear about that. No accidental. You, you don't take it. You don't take it. What's it say? They will not, they will not hunger anymore. Why? Because they're hungry during the tribulation period. What else does it say? Neither will they thirst anymore. Why? Because they're thirsty during the tribulation period. It's seven rough years. It says the sun shall not strike them with any scorching heat. Why does it say that? Because the Bible is specifically going to talk about judgments of scorching heat. They're, they're going to be scorched by the sun. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. What does that remind you of? Huh. The Lamb will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now look. They're going to have a special place. Where's their special place? Before the throne and in the temple of God. Serving God night and day. They're going to have continual protection. They went through seven years without the seal of God on them, right? The 144,000 were protected, but these guys, they suffered. God says, I'm going to be your covering for the rest of time. You're not ever going to suffer again. Never be an ounce of suffering. (coughs) No hunger, no thirst. (coughs) No scorching heat. Third, God's going to give them provision. What's the 23rd Psalm say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The word Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. What does it say here in Revelation 7? The Lamb will be their shepherd. Who's the Lamb? Yeah, who's Jesus? Yahweh. God's name is in the Son's name. Three in one. The Bible says that you're to be baptized in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an important concept to grasp. So the Lamb is going to be their shepherd. And what is it that the 23rd Psalm says? He makes me to lie down by the still waters. What does he say here? He says, man, he's going to guide them to springs of living water. What's he saying? God is going to provide for them. They had a rough seven years. God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to be with me. I'm going to watch over you. And then what's the last thing he promises? I'm going to wipe away every tear in your eye. Whatever suffering they suffer, and we have the same promise listed for us, whatever things we suffer through in this land, in in our life here, God makes that promise. I'm going to wipe away the tear. I'm going to comfort the hurt and the pain. And when I do, you're not ever going to feel pain or hurt again. It's gone forever. For now, we suffer. For now, we may be hungry and thirsty and scorched by the sun, just like these guys. But God's promise is, when you see me, I'm going to wipe away every tear. Jesus said it like this. I love this phrase. He said, see, I make all things new. Now, I am fond of saying all means all, and that's all that all means, except sometimes all doesn't mean all, which is frustrating for me. However, in this case, when Jesus says, I make all things new, that's what he means. He doesn't mean I make most things new. He says I make them all new. Whatever wrong, pain, suffer, suffering in your life occurred to you in Christ, He said, "When you see me, I'm going to make it all new. It's all going away." And that's an incredible promise, right? An incredible peace that God promises. And the promise that God made to the tribulation saints that we read about here is also the promise that God made to the church is also the promise that God made. To the Old Testament saints. All you have to do. Is open the Bible. And take a look. For God lays it out for us. In Isaiah 25.8. Isaiah the prophet. God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. To the nation of Israel. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away. The tear. From all faces. And the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And God's going to keep his promises. That's what we see. 144,000, they got a specific job, right? Take the gospel around the world. Just in case you think that's not enough, he's also going to send four angels. Remember them four angels in the four corners of the earth? He's going to send four angels around the world proclaiming the everlasting gospel. That's a lot of proclamation toward salvation, isn't it? In the midst of all that pain and suffering. Nobody is not going to hear. Nobody is not going to see. But there will still be people who will not repent. Who will not cry upon the name of the Lord and be saved. There are still stubborn people like that in your life, isn't there? I still got stubborn people like that in my life. So how do we pray? While we have time, Lord, change their heart. Can God do it? Amen, He can. Why don't you stand with me let's pray.